0: And welcome to Linux Action News, episode 214, recorded on November 7th, 2021. I'm Chris.
1: And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Let's do the news. And our first story this week is about a significant shift at GitHub. CEO Nat Friedman has announced he plans to step down. GitHub's chief product officer, Thomas Tomka, will take over the role of CEO and report to Julia Luisa. I lead developer division at Microsoft. My team's mission is to build the tools and services that developers love and use every day.
0: Coda radio listeners might recognize Louison's name. She was the head of the developer division at Microsoft, and she was also directly involved with that last-minute decision back in October to remove the hot reload functionality from the Open opensource.net project for the sake of Visual Studio sales. Developers pushed back pretty hard on that attempt, and Microsoft eventually reversed course. Luisen has since been promoted to president of Microsoft developer division, and she will now oversee GitHub. So it's a lot of names. So just to be clear, Domka, the new CEO of GitHub, will be reporting to Luisen at Microsoft.
1: Luisen has also been identified as a key player in Microsoft's overall open source strategy and their modern approach to developers.
0: No matter how you slice this, this is a big change for a critical tool that the overall community, I mean, Linux users, developers, I mean, a huge community uses. When Microsoft first acquired GitHub, there was a lot of concern in the developer community. We weren't sure how that was going to roll. Having Nat in the captain's chair just made a lot of us feel better.
1: Yeah, Nat Friedman had been active in the Linux community since the 90s and involved with some of our favorite projects. Kind of made sense when he was then made CEO by Microsoft when they bought GitHub for $7.5 billion back in
0: 2018. Whoa, $7.5 billion. Still seems like a lot.
1: <laughs> it sure does. As for what he's doing post-GitHub, well, Nat didn't have a lot to say, but did share, quote, I'm moving on to my next adventure to support, advise, and invest in the founders and developers who are creating the future with technology and tackling some of the biggest opportunities of our day.
0: Yeah, I think he still has about a month on the clock or such, uh, but this is going to be an adjustment period, and we don't really know a lot about Thomas Domka. We know that Nat hired him shortly after the Microsoft acquisition, and I'm pretty sure he was central in taking private repos free back in 2019. A lot of us like that. And Domkin himself even admits in interviews that he doesn't really have the public profile that Nat had when he stepped into the CEO role. But he does stress in those same interviews that he does have the background of a developer, and open source advocate, and that fits well into the overall line of GitHub CEOs of the past. He did also note that his overall
1: style is a bit different, focusing more on execution rather than necessarily being a visionary.
0: Sometimes it can really pay to find bugs, at least the right bugs for the right groups. Google announced this week it's upping its payments to security researchers who follow the correct channels and disclose new vulnerabilities in the Linux kernel. Yeah,
1: for the next three months, Google will pay out $31,337 for vulnerabilities that can exploit privilege escalation. Or if you can demonstrate a previously unpatched vulnerability or a new exploit technique, that could earn you
0: $50,000. $50,000. I mean, you know, Wes, we follow these kernel stories pretty closely. I think we could find a new monetization strategy for the podcast. We could even live stream it. <laughs> you find them, I'll squash them. <laughs> you better move quickly, listener. We're coming for them. Google's effectively tripling their previous reward amounts and promises to honor this for at least the next three months. They hope the $31,000 and $50,000 reward levels will encourage more security researchers to explore the Linux kernel and report their findings.
1: These kind of investments not only have a positive impact on Google's products, think Android and Chrome OS, but there are definitely some clear benefits for the entire Linux ecosystem as well. Setting up these kind of bounties seems like an excellent way for companies to give back, since they are building their empires on top of free software, after all, without necessarily having to be or hire a whole bunch of kernel developers directly sure would be great to see more companies follow in Google's example. But speaking of solving low-level problems, this week the scuttlebutt was around a new canonical tool to manage firmware
0: updates. This new tool is being built in Flutter, and it sits on top of the well-known FWAPD and, of course, the wider Linux vendor firmware service. Not
1: only does this seem to signal a deeper commitment to Flutter on Canonical's part, But it's also notable to see them building out desktop tools with a canonical twist again. And it appears this new tool will be distributed as, you guessed it, a snap. Now, it seems work on the firmware updater tool actually began in August. If you're curious for more, there's some information provided in the most recent Ubuntu Team update, which we'll have linked in
0: the show notes. Just a quick update on the story we told you about recently. Hector Martin, the founder of Asahi Linux and the lead developer to port Linux to Apple's new SoC, has announced that he's managed to get Linux booting on the new M1 Pro.
1: Hector notes he booted to a shell with frame buffer and working USB ports. Next on the list to get working is Wi-Fi and that SD card reader.
0: And of course, there's still the whole PCI bring up and storage, but They really are doing the hard work here. And during Hector's live stream, he spent most of the day finding out that he really only had to add a single line of code to actually get things to boot. And that is this process right there. All day long for a tiny discovery, one thing at a time. It is early days, but the first results on the new chips seem positive for Linux. Fedora 35 was released this
1: week, and you can find our in-depth review at linuxonblog.com slash 430 as well as our state-of-the-project chat with lead Matthew Miller. But today, we wanted to pull out one of the more newsworthy aspects of Fedora 35 and expand on it here. Wire Plumber ships as the new session manager for Pipewire, a change you really shouldn't even notice but might have some huge ramifications long-term. It's
0: in Fedora today, but it will likely hit all distributions at one point, so... On a new Linux system, applications and devices are represented to Pipewire as nodes. Nodes have in and out points called ports. These ports could be audio channels, video channels, multiple track channels. You get the idea. You can link these ports together to create a media pipeline or commonly called a graph.
1: Now, configuring those nodes and the ports and creating links between them all, that's the job of the session manager. Session Manager is responsible for orchestrating the media pipeline, if you want to be fancy about it. But something has to tell your applications that, yeah, they can go ahead and send media to the speakers over there. And that's where Wireplumber comes in, a pipewire client that has the ability to control those nodes and ports, and more. as explained by its lead developer, George Kiakiadakis. Now, Wireplumber is a modular session manager implementation for PipeWire. In the core, it provides an API that you can use to write any kind of tool that interacts with PipeWire. And on top of this API, we have built a daemon that uh, is scriptable with Lua scripts. And in these Lua scripts, you can write some logic to tell WirePlumber what to do with your media pipeline. So you can you can write your own scripts and provide some logic to orchestrate the media pipeline.
0: So until WirePlumber came along. Pipewire had been shipping in a fairly static default state. Not super flexible, but it got the job done. Switching over to a session manager to put the media pipeline all together, it creates a set of base tools, an API, that will enable tools that are user-friendly for anyone to use, and not just power AV wizards, anyone. But another fascinating thing about Wireplumber is actually the story of how it came to be. (laughs) Like so many things in desktop Linux land, It didn't really come to be just to give us something new and shiny on the desktop.
1: A lot of this work is actually the result of development in other areas of Linux outside the desktop. Fedora project lead Matthew Miller shared some insights into that in our State of the Project chat.
0: A lot of these things you're seeing are desktop related technologies, but they're actually hires related to an automotive initiative, which um, you'll see automotive keywords in a lot of these hires as well. And I don't have a lot of the details on that, but it is connected into things that are, you know, useful in the desktop, but also useful in other contexts as well. Um, and, you know, the more we can find things that tie all of these things together, the more we all benefit. You can imagine routing audio in a car, in an infotainment system, can be kind of tricky. You've got your input from an external client like a phone. You've got nav guidance. You've got voice prompts. Of course, you want to be able to take phone calls and override audio. Something has to manage all of that. And well, as a result, we get some cool tools on Linux. Specifically, Collabra has been working on this since 2019. It's already been adopted by the Automotive Grade Linux Project. So in many ways, what we're now getting in Fedora is production code. It's just now finally making its way to the desktop. On Friday, November 5th, the LX-Cute team
1: proudly announced the release of LX-Cute 1.0. The lightweight Qt desktop environment was in development for more than eight years. Notable areas of recent improvement include the file manager, the image viewer, and a whole bunch more throughout the lean and mean desktop. We just wanted to pass on a hearty congratulations to the project after so many
0: years of hard work. Linode.com slash LAN. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account and go there to show your support for the show. Linode is the Linux Geeks cloud with 11 data centers worldwide and they've been hard at work for 18 years creating the best experience for running applications on Linux. If you'd like to build it yourself or deploy one of the many one-click stacks, Linode has excellent options for you, and the performance is incredible. I I would not host all of Jupyter Broadcasting's audience-facing services on Linode if it wasn't super fast. And recently, Linode's been rolling out screaming fast new NVMe-based block storage. They have super flexible S3-compatible object storage and an easy-to-use dashboard that just really brings it all together. And after you've been using Linode for a minute, if you're like me you'll start to really appreciate their API. From the best customer support, super fast rigs in networking, and a Linux culture that runs deep, there's many reasons to choose Linode. So let's put it over the top. Go grab $100 in credit and support the show. Linode.com slash LAN. Go there, support the show, and get yourself 60 days and $100 of credit for the world's best place to run Linux in the cloud. Linode.com slash LAN. Linux.ting.com. You know, Ting is a mobile virtual network operator. So that means Ting has invested in customer support and getting you a great value. And that means they have nationwide coverage, a great mix of plans, and super fast LTE and 5G on multiple carriers that works best in your area. And Ting's plans are simple and straightforward. I've been a Ting customer since 2013, and that only happens when they get it right. And they just simply are the better way to do mobile. They have plans that start around $10 and top out around $55. And no matter if you need 12 gigs, 10 gigs, 1,000 gigs, they've got the right plan for you. And every plan gets access to Ting's award-winning customer service. And the best thing is, no contracts ever. I also have to appreciate, even though it's been a long time, it's still super simple to switch to Ting. Pretty much any phone's going to work because they have so many networks. So just get started. Go to linux.ting.com. Check your current phone, create an account, and pick the plan that's right for you. Ting will send you a SIM card. You pop that in your phone, and you're going to get activated in minutes. Cutting your phone bill in half has never been easier. With Ting's brand new plans, it's the next generation of Ting Mobile. It's here. Go see how much you could save, and then take $25 off that. Linux.ting.com.
1: We wanted to bust a little FUD today with our last story. As last week came to a close, a Red Hat memo announcing plans to hire fewer senior engineers and some budget freezes leaked online. In an internal email sent on Wednesday by Timothy Kramer, SVP of Software Engineering, to Red Hat managers, he directs hiring requisitions to be made at a lower level of seniority than usual. The email also touches on unfilled and backfilled positions that should be offered at reduced levels going forward.
0: And without some context, it's kind of understandable why people would be concerned about this story. You know, if Red Hat is unable to offer competitive pay or hire senior people, that could limit the company's success and limit its access to talent, or even make it difficult to retain existing skilled employees. But I think when you understand the broader context, this story isn't quite as shocking. First of all, this appears to only pertain to one division inside Red Hat, led by Tim Kramer, although a large one. Secondly, This is not the first time Red Hat has done something like this in the before IBM times. And I know some of you out there must have experienced this. Sometimes companies just get stuck in a bit of a culture of title creep. Over time, you end up with a few too many senior thises or a few too many heads of that. I've seen it a few times. Probably a lot of you have, too. And a lot of companies end up having to deal with this in some way, somehow, and It tends to never be easy, and it tends to also not be very clean. Sometimes departments experience intense growth for a period of time, and then that has to be realigned with like the longer term role for that department inside the larger organization.
1: A spokesperson for Red Hat confirmed the authenticity of the leaked email and added that Kramer's team had hired almost one thousand new staffers and Red Hat as a whole hired more than two thousand two hundred new associates this year, I guess essentially implying. They've done enough for a while. And indeed, it seems for 2022, that hiring figure will be more like 200.
0: You know, these ebbs and flows of companies are hard for those of us on the outside to really understand. And I've just seen some terrible takes on this story from basically anyone who couldn't be bothered to just go get a quote from Red Hat on what the heck is going on here. Context matters in these stories. But also, I don't know if you've noticed this, Wes, but there just seems to be like a voracious appetite in the Linux media for the whole IBM is destroying Red Hat narrative. And there doesn't seem to be much of an appetite at all for covering the hires the Red Hat made over the summer that will directly result in significant new desktop stuff. Uh, We recently highlighted some of them on a recent episode because we felt like they were getting very little coverage. But it just feels like people want to see Red Hat fail or at least people in the media do because in a way they're hoping for it because that's going to just generate a ton of clicks for them.
1: I think you're right. We're almost sitting there waiting to interpret any news as as if it's definitely IBM killing Red Hat this time
0: for right. sure. Right. Well, but almost also at the same time ignoring the positive news about the hires that they've done for like HDR support recently just as an example. I, I find that to be selective and I I don't know. I don't like it, Wes.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's why we wanted to talk about this today. We wanted to try to provide some kind of counterbalance to those knee-jerk, just reactionary takes out there. Doesn't mean that we won't continue watching IBM and Red Hat closely. Just means you have to take it all in balance, the good, the bad, and just the unknown. Mm -hmm. Something else to consider here, I think, is that this change does maybe open the door to some junior and mid-level developers that's not necessarily a bad thing. right? I mean, the more experienced staff, they have plenty of options right now if these changes
0: don't work out for them. That's true. It's a bit of a buyer's market at the moment. So that's a fair point. And also, just the previous hiring rate just doesn't seem sustainable. Nearly 1,000 in one department, that's a lot. I mean, it's a big department, but that's, that's a lot for any company, even a large company. Uh, and while we're on the subject, Red Hat Enterprise Nine's beta landed this week. This is the first rel that's really the fruits of CentOS stream and really started with Fedora 34. That means WireGuard is in here, C groups 2 by default, uh, kernel live patching inside Cockpit, a.k.a. web consoles, they call it in rel. a bunch of stuff. It's a big release to be sure, so we'll be keeping an eye on that and a lot more. So be sure you get every new episode by subscribing at linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. Links to everything we talked about today are at linuxactionnews.com slash 214. We'll be back next Monday
1: with our weekly take on the latest
0: Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us. And that's all the news for this week.